And so we come to the final scene of the play and the final episode of Persians, the podcast. Aeschylus and Nuala have taken us on quite a journey thus far, building us up to the appearance of the Persian king, Xerxes. We've been back and forth about the politics, the Orientalism, the nationalism, and the possibility of empathising with an enemy. And now, after 900 or so lines of verse, he arrives on stage. There's actually some scholarly argument over whether or not he arrives with his canopied chariot, but I'm happy to take the advice of our expert contributors to this podcast, who believe that Xerxes arrives alone. He's on foot, not in a carriage, not attended, and in the torn clothes we've been hearing about all through the show. This is a horrible contrast with the wealth of Persia that we saw from the beginning, the chorus, the queen and her golden chariot, and now this broken man shows up with nothing. This humble appearance is to be expected, of course. Athens defeated Xerxes, so naturally when he is brought onto an Athenian stage, it will be in a wretched condition. Nevertheless, Aeschylus allows him to speak, allows him to express the breath of his suffering. As ever, he uses everything that the form of tragedy makes available to him. And, as Professor Edith Hall here describes, the art form is quite an extraordinary synthesis. I know, it's as though they came up with this Gesamtkunstwerk out of nowhere. I mean, sort of out of nowhere. I mean, only 50 years earlier, uh, they had called dancing. Sure, they had called dancing. They had Homeric bards. Sure, they had Homeric bards. But the Athenians put it all together. They, they put all these different pre-existing forms. They have solo songs. And of course, Xerxes in, in the Greek sings everything. He's the only all-sung role in Greek tragedy. Um, we can tell that from the meters. So it, ideally, you'd need a really great, I think, tenor for, <laughs> for, for, for that role. The whole well, of the last quarter, uh, the, the, the great lament, which is antiphonal between Xerxes and, and, and the chorus, it, it would have been a crescendo of doleful music and all that breast beating and, and stuff that they say they're doing and pulling of their beards. Uh, and he's, he's shaking his empty quiver and pointing out his rags and all the rest of it. So it would have been extraordinary musical spectacles, um, which in some ways we have not yet advanced on. The, the actual combination of physical bodies in movement and different kinds of sound is, is why we all love theatre today. And this is our first and earliest example. Here it is, the oldest play we have, and it delivers surprises right until the end. I'm fascinated that Xerxes is the only character in all of the extant tragedies whose role is entirely sung. Very often in rehearsals for opera, we discuss how the characters in opera are experiencing emotions that are so heightened that they cannot speak and have to sing. There's definitely something comparable happening here. Xerxes is at the limits of human emotion, a register where words alone cannot communicate. He sings throughout because his suffering, his extremity, demand a bigger sound. Edith's suggestion of casting a really good tenor is a good one, but I think we've managed to do one better. 
we worked for this show with Irla Own Leonard, who is not only a great singer, but also an artist who is deeply involved with and connected to Ireland's traditional music and styles. We haven't done a great deal with music in the project so far, because it is first and foremost a response to an activation of Nula's translation. But since the original text is explicit that Xerxes sings rather than speaking, we've echoed that too. I spoke with the contemporary dance dramaturg, He Coles, who has done a great deal of work studying laments in various traditional cultures, particularly in Greece. He sees a kind of a thread running through laments and the kind of purpose that they can serve. In, in a lot of literature, which I also found beautiful, it's, it's a, it is about liquefying the emotions that are linked with the grief and, and, um, and uh, so the, the sadness, but also the anger. Um, if, if, they get, if, if, you get, if they get, if they become solid, they get stuck in the body and they create blockages. So the laments are there to support people in keeping these emotions um, flowing, express them, um, so that literally liquefy them in tears. This process of liquefying emotions sounds rather similar to what Aristotle calls catharsis, one of the reasons we enjoy tragedy. We experience an emotion, we share it at the theatre, and we feel better for that release. We can only imagine how it must have been for an Athenian audience to witness Xerxes leading a lament for the Persian dead, not even a decade after Salamis. As we discussed in an earlier episode, Athenian tragedies could put foreign or mythological characters on stage as a means of allowing the audience to access their own pain, their own memories. But to do so via the character of the city's greatest enemy was truly extraordinary. In Greek culture, it was usually women who performed laments during funeral rites. In tragedy, this wasn't always the case. In plays by all three major playwrights, we have laments that are performed by men. But this one, by Xerxes and a chorus of men, is probably the wildest in the canon. Often, in Greek tragedy, a character is announced before they enter, or the chorus will spot them on their way onto the stage. Nothing like that happens here. The chorus has finished their previous episode, and now they are silent as Xerxes enters. Immediately, he sings of his exhaustion, of his grief. He wishes he had died with his men, and laments the fate the cruel gods have visited upon him. Here is the first part of Irla's response to Nula's text.
Tagesetan matches Xerxes' grief, grief for the whole empire of Persia, the very earth lamenting the men she bore, now that the youth of Persia, the flower of the land, has been cut down. The chorus describes how all of Persia has been brought to its knees. This might even be a stage direction from Aeschylus, encouraging Xerxes, too, to kneel. Otoi. Otoi ri mavron er som darim wassel agus gradam war imperacht on the Persia. Agus dos na fir glor war, queenan on tala oigen avar a chahashi, a mariach exercis a lian hades gusmig le Persi. Ilimad far o agbatana forward vlahur natida. Side dodi, forish more far, na jahan na mila far, taj er lor. Ay, ay, er son na gocht onwen, arri na chire, ta chir na hoshe, chichiha hona gluna. Erli u fasoch, erli u fasoch. Xerxes exclaims that he has brought disaster to his family and to his country. The chorus answers that they will welcome him home with a tearful lament. Er 
Olagon fada sa an chintora over yandia a huron rashkela queen lande yora Now Xerxes tells the chorus that they should cry out cry out now that the gods have so clearly turned against him Squilemach, Morlor, Bronach, Varier, Ectort, Anora, the Olent, and Fabwil, Agus Kaher, Mavrehe, Achinen, the Tabustia, Harla, Ermuir, Dianame, Malagon, Gofada, Bog, Bean, Lienta, Lejora. At this point, we get yet another list of the names of those who have died. The chorus lists some of the names we heard at the beginning of the play, and even more now, all Persian soldiers and commanders who have been lost. Oi, oi, oi! Gleig amach agus faigola sa'r gachean rund. Ka wil an chydele da llwitia ar gardje. Ka wil da chymradahe. Dine ernos farandakis. Susas, Pelagon, Hagastatimus, Samnis, Agasusiskinis, a dog, Agbatana. Oi, oi, oi! Glegamach, O Sort! Kawil Fanuachos, Agas Adiomardos, Ursil! Kawil Antirna, Seoalkas, Nu Lilias, then Bord, Ursil! Agas Memphis, Therabus, Agus Masistras, Artembades, Agus Histaichmas, Kudum Mashest, Hut Arisht. Of course, Xerxes has to answer again. In this back and forth with the chorus, he has to answer, it seems, for every man that is lost. Dogu sim yegit erlor Go home. 
the hul fear yilish a chunik gachrod. On te a choid in the dehan a mila. On mak a bear a vieg batanachos, vig sasamus, vig megabates. Agus parthos? Agus olabares gri? Erog tu de yeyet? Erog tu de yeyet? Oh, oh, er son of Rome. Einsin tu nyhe olka har gach olk a harlot as na persi airark. As you've been hearing throughout this series, there are a great many non-verbal cries written into the text of this play. These come straight from Aeschylus. In English, they can sometimes feel extravagant, but Irish seems to have more space for them. We haven't shied away from them, and they gave room for even more emotion in performance. Yo, 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 Mavron. The scene continues to shift as now Xerxes seems to take control even if it's only control over the lament that he and the chorus are performing. He leads the chorus through the final segment of the play, encouraging them to row and rock like the oars of a ship. This has echoes in the physical call and response of certain Irish rhythms and traditions that Nula has woven into her version of the piece. Xerxes instructs the chorus to wail, to cry, to tear their robes and beat their breasts. This extreme display of grief, of vulnerability and pain, seems almost too much. Even if Aeschylus meant it as a demonstration of Persian decadence, such emotion was undignified to the sober Athenians, it goes beyond a display and really moves us. Perhaps the acknowledgement of all this loss is what will enable Xerxes to continue. In Irish culture, we have our own very distinct form of lament, called keening, from the Irish word cuine. Keening is performed at traditional funerals, although it's rarer these days. The cuine is also a poetic form, the most famous example of which is Queeny Art O'Leary, the lament for Art O'Leary, by Eileen Dovni Connell. This poem is one of the most famous in our language, very often studied and highly influential. Seamus Heaney used its very particular rhythms when he was working on his version of Antigone, the burial at Thebes. The work is still at the forefront of the Irish imagination, as a beautiful new book by Diren Nigriafa has just come out, called A Ghost in the Throat, in which she describes her own personal relationship with the text and crafts a superb new English translation of it. This lament, this queenie, is the gateway text that helped me imagine an approach to Greek tragedy in Irish, a powerful piece of poetry by a grieving woman from the south of the country. Irish versions of Greek tragedy have graced stages and filled books for at least as long as we've been an independent country. Here's Edith Hall again discussing how the Persians was at the heart of some of the more notable early approaches. Gilbert Murray wanted to put it on at the Abbey um, Theatre in about 1908. 
um, he, he, he really, really wanted to put it on um, with a seditious undertone, he said, because he was obviously supporting <laughs> Irish Republicanism. So, um, and, and Yates called, called uh, Easter Rising, you know, the sort of sallowness of the Irish intellect, even though Easter Rising had failed, it kind of marked the birth of a new, a new dawn of a new identity, um, which, so. six, which six years later came some fruition anyway. I mean, people were talking about this play at the birth of the modern Irish Republic um, consistently, which is quite fascinating to me that there does seem to be a, a, such a direct identification between Irish culture and, and the ancient Greeks. We've had mention of Lady Gregory and William Butler Yeats, two of the three founders of what became Ireland's National Theatre, and it's only fitting that we hear a little from J.M. Singh, their co-conspirator. His depiction of Keening, which he would have experienced firsthand in the west of Ireland, is haunting. The grief of the Keen is no personal complaint, but seems to contain the whole passionate rage that lurks somewhere in every native of the island. In this cry of pain, the inner consciousness of the people seems to lay itself bare for an instant, and to reveal the mood of beings who feel their isolation in the face of a universe that wars on them with winds and seas. They are usually silent, but in the presence of death, all outward show of indifference or patience is forgotten, and they shriek with pitiable despair before the horror of the fate to which they are all doomed. It's heavy stuff, but to me it sounds like he could be describing this devastating emotional climax at the end of the Persians. The affinities our founders felt with this play are still strong. We still know loss. This project may have been imagined as something of a conversation with grief or with our heritage, an attempt to look at our history through the lens of another culture. Like Perseus, we might peer at our horrors through this mirroring shield. For now, this project is only a blueprint, an attempt to map out a kind of performance that is proudly Irish, embracing our poetic and musical traditions and grafting them onto other ancients and imagining something new. This terrible year has forced us to stay apart, to sit alone instead of in audiences, in communities or in theatres. This project feels a little like a lament for the theatre, for what we have lost in this pandemic. We, the people who make theatre, are the Persians. We have encountered huge, unpredictable losses. We might never have imagined we could lose so much. But we will come home. We will sing our laments. We will face what we have lost. And we will continue. This project has been a great labour of love. And it would not have happened without the support of Willie White at Dublin Theatre Festival, the Theatre Department of the Arts Council, and our amazing producer, Maura O'Keefe. It featured signature music by Mel Mercier and performances by Katrina Nivaraku, Breedney Nachton, Marie Mullen and Owen Rowe. We had conversations with Oliver Taplin, Edith Hall, Lydia Conyordu and He Coles, and of course the role of Xerxes was interpreted by Irla O'Linnard. Irla actually made a beautiful, rich response to the text, and so we are going to end the show with that in its entirety. A Ghost in the Throat begins by describing itself as a female text, 
a conversation between two great women. This Persians, Napersic, is something similar, an ancient play given a new future in the voice of a brilliant Irish woman. A dirge and a drudge song, an anthem of praise, a chant and a keen, a lament and an echo, a chorus and a hymn. Thank you for listening. Oh, <laughs> 
Yeah, dig to a tie. 